0: Back in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 4, and we do want to remember that we are one church in three places, and our Ventura campus will be joining us for the sermon, so let's give them lots of love. (laughs) Okay, Revelation chapter 4, we're going to cover, cover the whole chapter this morning, and uh, this is a perfect chapter for the beginning of the year. The title of this message is The Heavenly Perspective. The Heavenly Perspective is what we're going to get from chapter 4. Chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation are the most robust explanation that we have of heaven and all of Scripture, Revelation chapter chapter 4 and chapter 5. So much to learn here as we're thinking about the heavenly perspective. We're going to read the text in a moment, but first let's pray and I'll say a few things and then we'll get to the text. Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you that before we were even Formed in our mother's womb by you, you knew our names and you loved us. Thank you for calling us to yourself through Christ and bringing us near to you. We pray that this year for us, that would be the biggest thing about our lives, is that we are the beloved of God in Christ. That that would bring us joy and strength. That it would compel us into obedience and mission and living for your glory that we would daily feed upon you. And we ask that, Lord, today, through the text, you would give us a heavenly perspective. That the things of this world would be put in right context, right perspective. That our minds would be set on things above where Christ is. And it would bring us great encouragement. And that the truth of heaven and our place in it would be transformative in our lives today for the glory of Jesus. Please help me now, Lord, to teach and preach. My tongue feels a little sloppy this morning. I pray that you would please just help me to speak clearly and to think clearly. I want to preach for your glory and for the good of the church. Give us ears that are also sharp to hear and hearts to obey and respond. We ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 Well, yesterday I spent the day conducting a couple different funeral services for a child from our church. Uh, Emily and Dominic Bally had a baby a couple weeks ago that only lived for 22 hours. His name was Nehemiah Leon Bally. And so we had a memorial service yesterday and a graveside service. and That was tough. I don't like doing funerals for kids. I don't like how that feels. don't like what that says. don't like how it makes me think and feel about our world. You know, our world feels a little, it feels a little crazy right now. Seems like every time you turn on the news, another plane has fallen out of the sky or disappeared. Russia's rampaging and doing things that it was doing 100 years ago. Seems like nobody's doing anything about it. ISIS is beheading people in the Middle East. Seems like we're not doing that much about it. In our own country, all of a sudden, race is the race issue is intense again and the political issues surrounding that are combative and divisive and just, just feels like the world's crazy place right now. We got our missionary in Liberia battling Ebola right now. It's you know, days like yesterday and headlines like we read today leave you with a lot of questions. A lot of questions. John's world was not that different. John, who wrote the book of Revelation. John the apostle. The John that knew Jesus. John's world and his situation had a similar feel. Rome was conquering the world, had conquered the world, and were ruling with an iron fist, unchecked by anybody. And there was a pervasive sort of culture of death during the time. Life was not that valued. It was cheap and Rome knew how to manipulate it for their purposes. Jesus had been on earth not that long ago speaking of a kingdom, his kingdom and his father's kingdom and a new kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. But from John's perspective, it seemed like the kingdom of Rome was carrying the day. All of his buddies... All the other apostles had been martyred by now. They'd all been killed. Some of them ran through the sword. Some of them beheaded. Some of them crucified upside down on crosses. All of those guys that were with Jesus and heard the good news of the kingdom, they they were gone. John himself was exiled, sitting on an island off of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, cut off from the rest of the world thinking about what what happened in the mission. I'm supposed to be taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and here I am exiled and in prison. And the church that was existing, we just studied about them in the previous two chapters. They were persecuted. Brothers and sisters were dying. Rome was killing Christians. And in the midst of it, the church was compromising on doctrine, on theology, and on morality. And the church was tolerating things that it shouldn't tolerate. And some of the church was drifting and leaving their first love and becoming lukewarm. That was John's time. And John's time, very much like our time, would leave you with a lot of questions. What in the world is going on? And John was about to discover through the revelation that Jesus was going to give him that things were actually going to get worse before they got better. John needed what we need, a heavenly perspective. John needed what we need, a timeout in a different place with a different view to get a grasp on what is truly what and who is truly who. And so Jesus now, as the book of Revelation progresses, is going to give John and so us the heavenly perspective So I want to read the text, Revelation chapter 4, and I want us to listen and to look for the key word, the key phrase, the key theme. It ought to stand out to you, and it means something very important. We'll start reading in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked, John speaking, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard voice of Jesus, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. And immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. And around the throne, there were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. And the first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had the face of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within and day and night, they do not cease to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is who is to come and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne to him who lives forever and ever the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne Saying, worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will, they existed and were created. How's that one? That's a good text, huh? What was the key word? Throne. Hard to miss it. John is taken up into heaven. He hears the voice of Christ like a trumpet. That means it's clear. It's clarion. It's unmistakable. It's not just talking about volume. It's talking about clarity. And what was intended was clear. A door is open and an invitation is issued. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. And everything up there is oriented around the throne. And by necessity, the one who is sitting on the throne. That is a great subject of Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. All of it is oriented around this throne. And Jesus, in showing John the things which must come next, wants him to see it from one perspective only, from the perspective of heaven, from the perspective of glory, from the perspective of the throne. He doesn't want him to see it from ground level. He wants him to see it correctly. He wants him to see what will come next for the world through the lens and the reality of the throne. Because Jesus is going to show John The end. The good, the bad, and the ugly. It's going to involve wrath. God's wrath. It's going to involve battle from Satan, the great adversary. And it's going to reveal the horror of humanity and rebellion to God. And it's going to be messy chapter 6 or 18. There's ways in which it's frightening. but God in his love only wants John, only wants us to see it from the perspective through the lens of the throne. Because the throne speaks of one thing, sovereignty, control, dominion. Christ wants John to know, he wants us to know that the things that will unfold in the future are under the sovereign dominion and control of Christ the King. He wants him to see who's who and what's what truly before he sees what will unfold on earth because in the coming chapters, chapters 6 through 18, and the realities that they represent for the world to come, there will be a lot of questions. You think there's questions today? There's a lot of questions to come. There was questions in John's day. There are more in the coming days. But what God knows is what we need to know. That a heavenly perspective has a way of answering those questions. Perhaps not in the way that we would expect. Perhaps not even in the way that we hope. But the heavenly perspective, the view from and through the throne has a way of answering all those questions. Why do babies die? Why do little girls die? Why is this the reality there? Why is that going on there? Why will it unfold that way? We need to see these things through the answer of the throne, the heavenly perspective. Think of Job, if you will. Man, Job had questions. Job had serious questions. And Job's friends had even more questions. In fact, about 40 chapters of them. And what happened to Job happened to Job and they spend the next 40 chapters or so talking about it, questioning it, wondering it, trying to make sense about it. They go on for 40 or so chapters and then finally at the end, God steps in and he speaks to Job and his friends and he gives them a heavenly perspective, so to speak. He says to them, in essence, in all their questioning and wondering and shaking their fists at heaven, he says to them, you guys don't even understand how I run the physical universe. Who are you to question me about how I run the moral universe? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Where were you when I spoke all things into existence? Where were you when I made the great beasts and breathed life into them? Tell me how that all operates. You don't even get how I run the physical universe. Don't pretend to understand the moral universe. Perhaps not the answer that Job and his friends were looking for, but a clarion answer nonetheless. God's saying, I know it doesn't always make sense to you, but remember the throne. I am in control. I'm sovereign. I have dominion. And Job's response was good. Look how Job responds. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I, Job says. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen and I will speak. I have some questions for you and you must answer them, God said to Job. And Job says, I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Job said, I... I get it now, God. My, my view has been finite and I've had many questions and there's been much wrestling and all sorts of confusion. But I get now that I didn't get it, but that you get it. And so God, I recant and I repent. Those are the words of a settled man whose questions have been answered, perhaps not in the way that he had hoped for or expected, but they were answered nonetheless in a real way that settles the soul through a heavenly perspective. The throne, the dominion of God. Think about Isaiah. Isaiah would be sent to a nation that was in rebellion to God. And he'd have some hard things to say on behalf of God to the nation. And before he was sent to that nation... God wanted him to have the heavenly perspective. Wanted him to see things clearly. Wanted him to see things in only as only they can be seen through the lens of the throne. And so we have Isaiah chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Isaiah the prophet said, high and exalted, seated on the throne and the train of his robe filled the temple Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two wings, they covered their feet. And with two wings, they flew. And they were calling out to one another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Very much like Job, Isaiah saw things differently through the lens of the throne. He saw things more clearly He discerned as things ought to be discerned in the radiance of God's glory. This is what the text is wanting to do for us today because there are many questions and there are more to come. But a heavenly perspective has a way, a different way of speaking to those questions. It has a way of setting things straight. John needed this. We need this. We need this in our world and in our time and in the days to come, we'll need this. And this perspective, this picture of chapter four and chapter five, stands in stark contract contrast, excuse me, to the messiness of chapters two and three. Chapters two and three were about you and me. It was about the church. And it was messy. There was compromise, doctrinal and moral. There was backsliding. There was lukewarmness. There was error. It was messy. There was persecution. There was pain. It was messy. And the glory of chapters four and five stand in contrast to the messiness, contrast to the messiness of chapters two and three, which had to do with us, the church. And yet, the book is wanting us to get this: that the church and all of its messiness is surrounded by the King and all of His glory. Because in chapter 1, we're given that vision of Christ, the resurrected Christ in glory. Remember that from chapter 1? And then in chapter 2, it begins with Christ saying, I am the one who holds in my right hand the seven stars of the churches, the representative leadership. And I am the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, the churches. And now as we leave the picture of the church into chapter 4, he is the one who is seated upon the throne in all authority, dominion, power, glory, and beauty. And this is the reality of the Christian life. We... And the messiness of who we are and who we are together are surrounded through our salvation with the dominion, the beauty, the glory, the power, the authority, and the love of Christ. And this has to be grasped in the early chapters of the book because there will be many questions. And so John's taken up the heaven. And then he begins to try to describe what he sees. And what we read in the following verses are words where there are no words to describe it. Reference for the indescribable. Analogies brought forth for things that are incomparable. Metaphor used for things that are gloriously incomprehensible and yet he tries in some language to describe what he sees and so he says in verse three and he who was sitting on the throne was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance here he is searching for words where there are no words, analogy for something that's beyond comparison. Now, we may have chosen different words. In keeping with good Jewish theology, he doesn't try to anthropomorphize it, he doesn't try to put any form on God, but he's trying to get at the essence of this overwhelming glory that he sees. And he can only think about some of the most beautiful things that they would have had in that ancient culture. He says it was like a jasper in appearance. The one sitting on the throne was like a a jasper. Well, we don't know what a jasper looks like unless there's a gemologist here. We don't know what a jasper looks like. Well, I Googled it. (laughs) There's an unpolished virgin. But what I think he's getting at is that there's this... Deep color and essence, there's this red to it. When you polish them, there's a translucence to it, and, it, and it's bright. We're talking about ancient culture here. There's no neon lights. There's no day-glow pink. There's no stage lights. Yeah. We might have said, oh, the glory was like the stage lights in reality and all the... No, there's none of that. It was like Jasper. And then he goes on to say it was like a sardius in, in, in the way they look. We, we don't know what that looks like, so we Google it. There it is. It's purple and it's, it's beautiful. Ezekiel saw a similar thing. In Ezekiel chapter 1, there's, there's great parallels between the two chapters. And Ezekiel says... the one on the throne looked like glowing metal as if full of fire. He looked like fire and brilliant light surrounding him. Here's two men who don't have the grammar to get at what they're seeing. It's evident that there's a throne. It's evident that the throne is occupied, but the one on the throne is beyond description. He's like fire. Like a Sardis, it's red and it's purple and it's like glowing metal and it's radiant. And both Ezekiel and John talk about this sort of out sort of outgoing radiance around it. This is, they, they call it a rainbow, or the Greek word also means a halo. He says, and there was a rainbow around it that was like an emerald. We know what an emerald looks like, but we Google it nonetheless. <laughs> there was a rainbow-like emerald around the throne. We think of rainbows as you know being multicolored, but I think the idea is a halo, a glow, and there's this glow beyond description that's coming forth from the throne. Again, Ezekiel, in describing the same thing, says in chapter one, as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. Here's what helps us. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. It's hard for us to get it. It's hard for us to think, oh, Sardis and Jasper. And, uh, it's hard for us to get it. Listen to Ezekiel. He says, I, I, I just fell on my face. Okay, we're, you know, when you, when you tell a joke and someone's like, oh, it wasn't that funny. You're like, oh, you had to be there. If you were there, you'd really get it. You had to be there, I think. <laughs> but, but listen to the one who was there. Ezekiel, who by the time he gets to the end of chapter one, had already seen some pretty gnarly visions. It says, when I saw this, the one on the throne, all I could do was fall on my face. This is glory beyond description. Skip verse four for now. Go to verse five. We'll be back. And from the throne proceeded flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven lamps of fire before, burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So there's all these colors and there's this glow and it's like fire and it's like a rainbow and there's lightning coming from it and thunder. Thunder. There was nothing more powerful in the ancient world. Okay, they didn't have like one gigawatt generators. They didn't have like those lights from Costco. They didn't have any of those things. It was like lightning. It was the most powerful thing you could ever imagine. And thunder, they didn't have giant PA systems. That was the loudest sound in the universe. He says the throne had thunder and lightning coming. This is talking about uncontrollable power. Thunder and lightning are associated with the presence of God. And in the book of Exodus, when, the, when they were camp, Israel was camped around Mount Sinai, they were camped there for a few days. And then the presence of God came down and there was a thick cloud and there was thunder and lightning. And they're just down at the bottom of the mountain like, oh. Thunder and lightning. Speaking of the presence and the power of God. But it's also used in the book of Revelation to speak of the wrath and the judgment of God. And we'll see thunder and lightning resurface in the coming chapters as being representative of the unchecked, all-powerful wrath and judgment of God. Then he says, and there were seven torches in front of the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And... Seven Spirits of God is a weird book of Revelation way of speaking of the Holy Spirit. That's what that is. If you look at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, it makes that clear. Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from... Okay, here's who the letter's from. From him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, a picture of the Trinity. It's real clear in the book of Revelation that seven spirits is just a weird book of Revelation way of speaking of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is present here. This is God in all of his glory. In chapter five, we're gonna see the Lamb, Jesus Christ. And when in verse five here, it says there's thunder and lightning and the Spirit is present, this is talking about the pervasive presence and soon to be on earth pervasive judgment of God. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who goes forth and carries out the work of God. Verse 6 introduces something interesting. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. That doesn't mean there's no surf, that just means there was this expanse It was beautiful, I guarantee it. (laughs) And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf and the third creature had the face of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle and the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within. Okay, this is weird. Right? This is Talk about questions. What? These are weird things. Ezekiel saw similar things. Maybe they were the same things but Ezekiel says that each one had the face of a lion, a calf, an eagle, and a man. Each one. And when they turned different directions, you would see the different faces. So maybe John has only seen one side of them. Or maybe they're different. Maybe there's variations of cherubim and seraphim. The ones in Ezekiel seem to only have two wings, but the seraphim that Isaiah spoke of had six wings. And these ones have six wings. And we read in Isaiah chapter two, verse six, that they have six because they need two to fly for sure. But with two, they cover their feet because they're in the presence of God, it's holy ground. It's like when God said to Moses, you're on holy ground, take off your shoes. And with two, they cover their faces because who could ever gaze upon the holiness of God? And they're full of eyes. That's some sort of language is trying to get at their perception. These things live in the heavenly perspective. They perceive in perhaps a way that we, from our finite perspective on earth, two eyes don't perceive. These great beings who, when they sang in Isaiah chapter 6, their voices were so thunderous that it shook the foundations and the threshold of the temple, Have have you been? I've been 10 times. Have you been to the temple in Israel? The temple ground there? Have Have you seen how huge the stones are? They're massive. When these things sang, holy, 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 they shook in the presence of Isaiah. These things are gnarly. And what do they, with all of their power, with all of their awesomeness, with all of their Clarity and perception from a continuous heavenly perspective. What do they do? Well, they're like Ezekiel. They just worship. They're there in the presence and they can't find anything other to do than worship. It says at the end of verse 8, And day and night they do not cease to say, Day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Get this, because this is like one of those things where you just had to have been there. They're there, and they never get over the glory and the presence of God. Day and night, they do not cease to say, we are the beloved of God, but we are at a disadvantage sometimes with our finite perspective. And we seem sometimes to take the presence lightly. It's different for us. But it's the same God. And we come in church and it's our time to sing. And Our hands are in our pockets or our mouths are closed or our minds are somewhere else or we wander out to the lobby and chit-chat. That betrays our lack of perception. If only we had eyes within and all around, we might see more clearly as a text is trying to help us to do. The glory, the wonder, the splendor, the power, the majesty of God. You're gonna have to take the word and the example of those who are there. These crazy cherubim, they never get over it. Day and night, they do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy. Holy. They say it three times because one time doesn't quite get at it. You know, if we want to like highlight something, we do just that, right? We take a highlighter and we highlight it or we put it in bold or we underline it or we put exclamation points or we write it in red, F. In the ancient culture, they didn't have highlighters, they didn't have bold, they didn't italicize it, they didn't underline it. In the ancient culture, when you wanted to emphasize something, you repeated it. And the greatest emphasis was when something was said three consecutive times. The cherubim are saying that there's no other way to describe it than holy And holy, and holy is the one who sits upon the throne. One time doesn't get it, two times doesn't get it. The strongest way they could speak of the holiness of God, his otherness, his moral purity, his excellence, his essence in his being is holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty not kind of there, not kind of in control, the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come, that speaks of his eternality, who has always been. We have not always been. We are created beings. He is eternal. He has always been. He is almighty. We are not almighty. We are finite. We are frail. He's almighty. And he's holy, holy, holy. So much so that Ezekiel fell down that John is reaching for grammar that he just doesn't have and that these crazy cherubim never cease to say, holy, holy, holy. This is a heavenly perspective. This is what Christ was wanting John to get before he saw the rest. This is the lens through which Christ was wanting John to see the church persecuted. The church suffering. The church compromised. Judgment coming to the world. The battle of the enemy. The rebellion of man. All through the glory and the power, the wonder, the beauty, and the majesty of God. But what we cannot miss in the text is us. Because we're there. At least we're represented. Back to verse 4. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. 24 thrones around the throne, the main throne. 24 thrones around it. And they're also occupied. There's elders sitting upon them. And there's been much discussion amongst commentators and Bible scholars and Bible students who are these 24 elders. The number 24 is used frequently in scripture as a representative number. For the priesthood, there are 24 representing the whole priesthood who are in the sanctuary. There are 24 members in the choir representing all of Israel in the priesthood. 24 is a representative number of a complete body. So it would seem consonant with the rest of Scripture that these 24 represent a broader body. Who might they represent? It seems clear to me who they are. They're clothed in white we were to skip to Revelation chapter 19 and go to the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is a consummation of Christ the bridegroom and the church the bride. We would see there, it says, the saints who are clothed in fine white linen. And they have crowns upon their heads. Christ has always promised that his church, those who are his, would rule and reign with him. And a crown represents nothing more and certainly nothing less than ruling and reigning. Christ always made this promise to his church. Look what he said to the 12 apostles in Luke's gospel. We'll get there. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones to the 12 apostles. Look as we move to Paul speaking in Timothy. It is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, we will also live with him, speaking of Christ. If we endure, we will also reign with him. This is part of the promise for Christians is that when Christ fully and finally establishes his kingdom, that we will rule and reign with him. Paul spoke of it again at the end of 2 Timothy when he said this, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. He's at the end of his life. He's about to die. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all of those who have loved his appearing. The crown symbolizes this co-ruling with Christ that the church will experience. Look in chapter 3, verse 21. Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on the throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Look at Revelation chapter 5, verse 10. And thou hast made us to be a kingdom of priests to our God and we will reign upon the earth. Let me read to you Revelation chapter 20, verse four. And I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So it seems to me abundantly evident that these 24 elders sitting on these 24 thrones, little thrones assembled around the big throne is a representative body of us, the church. This represents us and our presence and our place in heaven and it must be said that it is a place of privilege and reward listen to me Christian it is a place of privilege and reward there we are clothed in wine crowns on our heads fought the fight stayed the course Won the race. We've been rewarded. We've been washed, cleansed. We've been accepted and brought into a place in his kingdom. I mean, the main thing about the heaven is the throne upon which God sits, but there we are in little thrones. What a place of privilege and reward. Colossians 3 4 says, And when Christ who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all his glory. I mean, let let this hit you. Beyond description, Ezekiel's on his face. Angels never stop singing the glory of the Lord beyond grammar, beyond metaphor, beyond analogy. And there we are because of the blood of Jesus somehow sharing in the glory me with my sin, with my rebellion, with my two-facedness, in the presence of these four-faced things, in this overwhelming glory, me with Jesus. What a privilege that we would share in his glory through salvation in Christ. But here's where the text leaves us. The text puts it all in context when it shows what we do with our little bit of glory. Verse nine. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, then the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before his throne, saying worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for thou didst create all things and because of thy will, they existed and were created. That's the right perspective. Man, because of what Christ has done for us on the cross, we are brought into this place. Of privilege, of reward. And that's part of the heavenly perspective that we need to keep. That's part of the reality from which we live and and which we live into. It's part of our future experience, sharing in this glory that is indescribable. But when the worship leaders in heaven, these six winged things, start singing, and we behold once again the throne, all we can think to do is to get down off of our thrones and take the crown off of our heads and throw them before him. Because our glory could only pale in comparison to his. And so we fall down and we throw our crowns at the feet of Jesus. This is who's who and what's what. This is a heavenly perspective. And the lesson here is this for our life. What is this really all about? It can get muddy down here in the weeds. It can get muddy at ground level. We need this perspective. It is all about the throne and the one seated upon it. His beauty, his glory, his power, his sovereignty and his dominion. I know it gets messy down here in the mud and the muck and the mire but we need this perspective what is this really all about it certainly isn't you certainly isn't me it's got to be bigger than our drama and our heartaches it's got to be bigger than our dreams and the kingdom we're so busy building it's about a greater kingdom and a greater king and what about your throne because you're afforded one What about your throne? It's not the throne. We've got to remember that in daily life. We are not the sovereigns. It's not the throne. Who's in the center? Get to heaven, we're not in the center. We're not the main thing. Jesus is the main thing. Whose glory is it about? Whose crown is it about? We spend so much time concerned about our glory. I do. This is a heavenly perspective. It's just not about my glory. This is, dear brothers and sisters, this is the way things really are. Behind the veil, beyond the mess, this is the way things really are. And so, how are we living now? Living to the throne. Live in light of eternity. Live in light of the heavenly reality. What, what questions do you have now? What, what are you struggling with? Take him to the throne. You're probably not going to get the answers that you want, but you're going to get the right answer. The right answer is the one who is seated upon the throne, sovereign, dominion, loving. Let me tell you about the final word from the throne. I'll just read it to you. We'll cheat and we'll go to the end of the book. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, there shall no longer be any mourning, or crying, or pain, the first things have passed away. And he who sits upon the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes shall inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. That is the final word from the throne. You know what's absent in heaven? Anybody shaking their fists at God. I'm saying, why didn't you? How could you? Why wouldn't you? Where were you? There'll be none of that. All of it will be answered in his glory. Peter knew this, and he said this. All praise to God. The Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, It is by his great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad. There's wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, but your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise, glory, and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. And so you love him, even though you've never seen him. No, you do not see him now. You trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy the reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. Whatever it is in your life, take it to the throne. Whatever seems so big, so overwhelming, so exciting, take it before the throne. And my brothers and sisters, now as we begin to worship, we are as a church entering the throne room where God is meant to be glorified where we can receive help in time of need. Brothers and sisters, let your hearts and your minds be formed by the reality of heaven. We don't see it clearly, but, but take the example of Ezekiel who fell on his face. Take the example of our representatives of 24 elders who fell on their face and threw down their crowns. Take the example of the cherubim who never get over his presence and don't cease to sing. Don't be a church with your hands in your pockets and your mouth closed, fooling around in the foyer. Christ is worthy of all our praise. Thank you Lord for your word. It's so helpful to us. Thank you for this glorious truth. We ask that we would be radically formed by this truth. And Lord, how we thank you that you love us and you know everything that's going on in our lives. and thank you for opening a door to heaven today and saying, "Come up here." and showing us what's what and who's who. Help us now, Lord, to rest in that. Help us to lean into that. Help us to rejoice in light of that. Help us, Lord. Our minds are distracted and our hearts are crowded. We we need your help to maintain this heavenly perspective today as we gather and tomorrow as we go and things get muddy and messy. Thank you for the throne. In Jesus' name, amen.